I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. Later this year, the results of the 2021 census will be released and will almost certainly show that around half of the British population have no religion. Western societies have been secularising for decades, arguably for centuries, and theorists have long claimed that religion is finally on its way out. But it doesn't look like that across the rest of the world. And even in Western societies, a surprising number of people believe in and do a surprising number of religious things. For example, according to research conducted by Theos and YouGov around the time of the census, only half of the people who tick the no religion box also tick the I don't believe in God box. So what's going on here? Where did religion come from? Where is it going? And indeed, what even is it? Robin Dunbar is Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford and a member of the Royal Anthropological Society. He has a particular expertise in primate behaviour and a long-standing interest in the development of religion. And his new book looks at, in the words of its own title, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. Robin, welcome to Reading Our Times. Ah, hello. I want to begin with a statement you make right up front in the book, to the effect that there is no known culture for which we have an ethnographic or an archaeological record that does not have some form of religion. Religion seems to be ubiquitous in human history and prehistory. Where do we find the first signs of what we might one day call religion? The archaeologists worry deeply about this very question, actually, because how do you recognise signs of religion in the archaeological record? There's two options here. One is finding evidence of things like temples or priesthoods or sacrifices, or maybe burials, burials with grave goods, because they imply something about the possibility that the dead person is going to another world, and they will need to take these goods with them. Those two actually have very different dates. We tend not to see anything that even vaguely looks like, let's say, a temple space or evidence for priesthoods and things until the very early Neolithic, once you start to have settlements and serious cities rather than just villages. That's about 8,000 years ago, roughly. Yeah, something of that order. Burials with grave goods occur much earlier. They date back to about mm, 30,000 years ago, Possibly, possibly a little further. Cave art as well, possibly, is an indication, is it? I think so. It's not usually been interpreted as such, although some people have speculated in that direction. I mean, most of the focus on cave art has been on the art. But my kind of feel, just from where it is, deep in caves, where you've got wonderful sound resonances and and things like that, that this is possibly... And this is a, a speculation that, that in some sense it's a kind of record of what they experienced deep in caves when they were in trance states, as it were. But I suspect 
that trance-based religions, if we can call them so, where you know you go into trance and you go into a spirit world and you travel around a spirit world, that really is very early and and possibly even goes back to the later Neanderthals yeah. and, and archaic humans. There's one other piece of archaeological evidence that I can't not mention really it's quite late on the scene but it's the evidence of stimulants tell us how evidence of stimulants might fit into this picture well to be fair i think the evidence of stimulants is probably counts as historical rather than archaeological (laughs) in the sense that it only goes back well i don't know let's say at least as far as the early neolithic but possibly a little further but perhaps not that much further the issue with stimulants is simply that Many of the contemporary and and recent historical hunter-gatherers that we know about often use stimulants to go into trance states. And we know from historical record, for example, from the Egyptians, amongst other peoples from all over the old world, that stimulants of various kinds are used in religious ceremonies and are highly prized. Interestingly, a lot of those initially seem to have been discovered through their medicinal properties as much as anything else. We used opium extensively in in the 19th century and well before that as a a painkiller. A lot of these things really did have health benefits of various kinds and there's a sort of magical component to that if you like that we can manage the world and control it and and this very quickly I think gets taken over by priesthoods once priesthoods arise. Yes, I rather like the idea of Anglican clergy controlling the opium for the parish. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll we'll leave that one hanging in the air. Um, It's really important to emphasise that when we're talking about this stage of early history and prehistory, we're not talking about religious truth claims here. We may come on to those later when we talk about doctrinal religions. But before then, which means for most of human history or prehistory, we're talking about what you call in the book shamanic religions, where truth claims or even moral claims are largely irrelevant. And the key issue here, you argue, is the effect of bonding that religion has on human societies. Explain that. None of the religions that we find in contemporary and and recent historical hunter-gatherers involve things like moral codes. They have no divine justification in that sense. So those kind of things are very separate. I have call them, as you say, shamanic religions because they involve trance and they often involve shaman-like activities like music and dance and singing and so on. But uh, one might also think of them as religions of experience, really. You're immersed in this trance state invariably in these religions. And, And there's a spirit world in which you can enter into through trance and wander around in, but these are not peopled by supreme gods or even mm. gods in, in in any sense that we would think of them in terms of the major world religions of today. Mm. They have an effect on wider community through ritual and synchrony and practices that help cohere a community that has grown beyond the size that other forms of bonding like grooming enable to stay together. Yeah, this is one of the two main pitches of the book. One is that these early religions were of this kind of shamanic experiential form. The other is the suggestion that they evolved as part of the toolkit for bonding. Now, you have to see this in the context of how primates in general bond their social groups, which is through social grooming. They devote an inordinate amount of their day to grooming each other. 
Grooming triggers the endorphin system in the brain. It gives you the same sense of calmness and relaxation and everything's well with the world and so on. And trust in those whom you're doing these activities with. The problem with grooming is it's very time expensive because you can only do it with one person at a time. And I challenge you to try doing it with two people in the back, <laughs> back seat of the cinema if you don't believe <laughs> I absolutely guarantee one of them will walk out in a huff after about 10 minutes at the most. So the problem that our ancestors had at some point in their evolutionary history is they were needing to evolve much larger groups, essentially as they were moving out into much more open, treeless kinds of habitats and therefore more exposed to the risk of predators attacking them. And the, this was pushing group sizes up above the nominal group size of 50. So they tried successively to introduce a whole series of behaviours which turned out to trigger the endorphin system. Laughter came in very early on, then singing and dancing, singing without words, really, communal humming, yeah. of course. And then once language appeared, religion in a serious way comes in, or the rituals of religion. We're really talking about the rituals of religion. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the rituals of religion, most of the things we do in the major religions of today are just the kinds of things which we use in everyday social life, as it were, as our social toolkit to trigger the endorphin system and create this sense of belonging and bonding mm. to the wider community. And, and those are things like singing, dancing, telling emotional stories, and of course, all the sort of foundational stories of all the religions are trials that are triumphed over mm. by, by the founder and so on. And on top of that, what seems to really work is when we do these things in synchrony. That That's true of laughter, singing, dancing, all these eating together, feasting together, all these things that trigger the endorphin system. If you do them in synchrony with a group of people, it ramps up the effect dramatically. And of course, that's exactly what most religious services yeah. do. It's very interesting to explore the link between that communal activity and personal benefit, because as you point out in the book, many evolutionary biologists and psychologists like to claim that religion is effectively a mistake, a kind of unintended byproduct of evolution, a bit like lower back pain. You argue otherwise, and indeed you have a whole chapter on why believing might be good for you. So it's not as if that communal effect is at the expense of or an alternative to personal, psychological or health benefits. You argue that the two run together, don't you? Uh, yes, absolutely. And over the last 20 years, evolutionary biologists have come to see aspects of groups working together as being part and parcel of this process. So this is not group selection in the classic sense. It's still about selection at the level of the individual or selection at the level of the gene, as in classic Darwinian theory. But now what's happened is the recognition that for very social species, there are benefits that accrue at the level of the group by virtue of being able to do things as a group, by being able to cooperate in some sense, that benefit the individuals disproportionately to what they would manage if they were on their own. And the classic example of that is simply cooperative hunting in species like lion or hyena, for example. By cooperating together, they can bring down much, much bigger prey than an individual could do if it was hunting on its own. And therefore, as a group of hunters, they benefit. Now, what primates have done is rather than form anonymous herds, which is what most of the deer and antelope and shorebirds and flocking birds do, which where the herd sort of comes together if there's a threat and then gradually breaks up and dissipates when the threat disappears. Primates have opted to go for these bonded groups. These are very costly to them, but the big benefit is that 
when a threat appears serendipitously, as predators usually do, out of the blue, as it were, then you know your mates are around you. Yeah, and it's interesting to reflect on how that deep evolutionary basis is still present today in that you remark early on that there is evidence that religious people are happier and more contented with their lives, that actively religious people have healthier than non-religious people. Active involvement in religion makes you feel happier. So it's not as if we're facing quite the same survival pressures as we were 400,000 years ago, but that collaborative communal stability still feeds through to our health and our happiness and well-being. Yes, and that is an accidental byproduct, I think, of the fact that the bonding system is built around the endorphin mechanism in the brain, because it turns out that one of the things endorphins do is it sort of catches the essence of what's going on, and it particularly causes natural killer cells to be flooded out. Natural killer cells have a particular target of finding and destroying viruses and some cancers and things like that. So you can see a mechanism here that provides a direct benefit in terms of health, in addition to the social benefits. But what's interesting about the social benefits is that the big discovery, I think, of the last decade and a half has been huge quantities of evidence, epidemiological evidence, showing that the single best predictor of your health and future survival, even your psychological well-being, is simply the number of close friends you have mm. over and above absolutely anything that your friendly neighbourhood GP worries about on your behalf. Not to say that what the GPs worry about doesn't make a contribution, but the single best thing you can do for a happier, healthier, psychologically more satisfied life is to have friends. And, mm. and that is the core to creating these bonded social groups in primates. Mm. Sociologists of religion, philosophers of religion debate endlessly about what religion actually is. And that's a, a black hole I don't particularly want to go down in our time together. But there is a relatively well-established division or categorization of religion as functional and religion as substantive. Religion does something or religion has a content. And we've been talking about the function of religion to a large degree. But I do want to bring in the substantive element because, again, this comes across very clearly in the book there is, for want of a better word, an irreducibly transcendent element to religion. You talk about the mystical stance through the book and you say it's a bit like falling in love. It's almost part of what it means to be human. Why do you think we as a species seem to be so predisposed to a belief in or at least an interest in the transcendent? I actually think it's magical properties that if you go into trance in the way that many cultures and many religions do, you do seem to enter into another world, what's interpreted as the spirit world, as it were, a sort of parallel universe. Now, you can colour that almost how you like. If you're hunter-gatherers with no doctrinal ideas, particularly, it's a place where you meet up with your dead ancestors or various other kinds of spirits. Or if you belong to some doctrinal religion, the great world religions, then it's very clear that your experiences in trance states are very heavily coloured by the doctrines of the religion. So my argument very much is religion starts as these experiences in this spirit world, and then later, post the Neolithic settlement, when 
the world religions, the doctrinal religions, gradually developed. The particular theologies, if you like, or doctrines that they have, then start to colour your experiences. Mm. You're probably familiar with the work of E.B. Tyler, who was the first reader of anthropology at Oxford University and and the first person who genuinely kind of scientific anthropological interest in the origins of religion. And he posited that it was dream worlds that was the first prompting towards religious impetus in, in human beings. There's a very thin division, I'd say, between dream worlds and trance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, trance is waking dreams in many, in many ways. Yeah. I do want to ask you about this really interesting issue of intentionality, which seems like a kind of abrupt turn in our conversation, but it was one of the particularly interesting bits of the book. Let's start from the beginning. What do you mean by intentionality and how does it feed into this question of the origins of religion? Intentionality is actually a term that was developed really in the 1950s, 60s by some philosophers of mind trying to understand our mental states, essentially, and recognising that a lot of those are actually social. So we think about what somebody else is thinking about to try and understand what their motives are for behaving in the way they do. And they came to the conclusion there's a sort of class of these kinds of mental state verbs, thinking, believing, wondering, supposing, intending, hence intentionality, that are very important in our mental life. And of course, they turn out to be very important in our social life because these are how we negotiate our relationships and interactions with the people we live among. Psychologists, developmental psychologists, have been very interested in this whole concept because it characterizes a major shift that occurs in the mental capacities of children. So whatever they believe about the world, that's how it is. But around about four to five, they come to realize that actually other people can have views of the world that are different to theirs. And this gave rise to the idea of, or the concept of theory of mind. Mm. You acquire a theory of mind. You, You understand what it is to have a mind or for another person to have a mind which is essentially the same as yours, but actually think something different about the world. Now, it turns out that five-year-old children can do two mind states at the same time. That's theory of mind. I believe that you think something's the And that's what you call second-order intentionality, That's second-order intentionality, yep. Adult humans can do fifth-order intentionality, or they can handle five mind states. That's, say, their own mind state, their own belief about the world, plus uh, the mind states of maybe up to four other people. Mm. And that turns out to correlate with the size of your social group. Now, it just occurred to me some years ago, and, and this is no more than some sense than a speculation, that viewing the world in this way has really considerable implications for our ability to think about and convey to other people ideas about spirit worlds, let's call them. If you think in terms of the kinds of propositions that you can make with different orders of intentionality, the kind of religious propositions you can produce are very, very different. Obviously, they're very simple. If I believe that you think there's a spirit world. But once you get up to around fourth or fifth order intentionality, you can get much more complex propositions about, for example, how God or some other occupant of the spirit world views our behavior and how we ourselves relate to each other's beliefs about those. Mm. It seems to me that with fourth order intentionality, you can have what I call a social religion in the sense that you can tell me all about your beliefs in God in the spirit world and how he may or may not rain thunder and lightning down on me for my misdemeanors. 
But I think with fifth order, it starts to become possible for us to be locked together in a doctrinal world in which if I accept what you say as true, then I'm obliged to believe that as well. Mm. So this is a fifth order intentionality, which is essential for that kind of communal, communal religious, yep. doctrinal yep. experience. It also feeds into another interesting reflection you have in the book about how there may be more than one way of being religious. And you draw out or hypothesise categories of reactive and reflective religion. This really just goes back to the central theme, actually, of the book, that these kind of mystical, trance-based components of religion, which seem to be very, very ancient in our evolutionary history, are still there. They weren't replaced by the doctrinal world religions coming along. What, what the doctrinal religions did is simply bolt on doctrine on top of this kind of underlying mystical stance as it were so you've effectively got two kind of components to religion operating simultaneously in the same world one is this deep old mystical trance like component and the other is the cognitive component a more intellectualized component that's coming in particularly with the doctrinal religions one of the findings that's pretty much ubiquitous in research of religion is the propensity of women to be more religious pretty much anywhere in the world. How do those two fit together? My guess is that it's actually a reflection of the sex difference in the way the social world is organised. Because what's very clear from the more conventional social psychology of friendship is that men's social world and women's social world are very different in the sense that women's social world is much more intimate and in some ways dyadic and, and involves very strong committed bonds, whereas men's social world is rather casual and club-like. And that seems to possibly underlie this sex difference in religiosity. These very intense emotional experiences that characterise women's social world is transferred across into the religious world. Is there a sense that these religions all have this sense of attachment to an individual? And I think you can see that a lot in the kind of mystical writings, especially so in the Christian tradition. Just look at how through the ages, the, the great mystics have expressed their sense of wonder and religiosity and so on. Yes. It's always about this sort of deeply meaningful relationship they have with God. So if the modern world religions with which we are very familiar, we know them as doctrinal religions and we understand doctrine as this process of intellectualising and reflection on a base level of experience, it's often been observed that many of the world religions today emerge in some form or other in what's called the axial age, sometime around the first millennium BC, is there a reason for that? I mean, I know you talk about the Neolithic being very important in the emergence of doctrinal religion. How does that change in the Neolithic relate to the emergence of world religions in the Axial Age? There are two phases in the evolutionary history of religion. The early, more primitive, trance-based, animist phase, as it was always called, and the kind of doctrinal phrase that began to emerge in the early Neolithic. But I think 
one can also subdivide that second phase into an early phase and a late phase. And that late phase seems to be associated with what's come to be known as the Axial Age. These Axial Age religions are the great modern world religions as we have them now. I think it's true to say that two things characterise all the major Axial Age religions as we have them. One is that they're associated with a very significant growth in population size, the emergence of empires, really. So you're now dealing not with towns of a few thousand people that you've got to try and bond, but you're dealing with extended communities in excess of a million people. But the other one, which nobody seems to have noticed, they all originated within the same very narrow latitudinal band across yes. the top of Africa, through the Middle East, Ganges Plain, essentially, in, in India, and the, the Yellow River, Yangtze River, Great Basin in, in China. All of them occurred there. Some of them have moved, but they all occurred there, and a lot of them were monotheistic. The Axial Age, beginning perhaps 4,000 years ago, so 2000 BC, is preceded by a long, very wet, rich period in the world's climatic history. And then suddenly, about 4,000 years ago, the whole thing went pear-shaped, and you had a very sudden drying. The Sahara dried up very, very quickly over a matter of a few hundred years to the condition it's in now. And this was associated quite soon afterwards, by about 3,000 years ago with enormous population movements and a great deal of pillaging and burning and, yes. and destruction of cities. Um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, it's associated with the appearance of the sea people. But that period of upheaval, the collapse of major societies and empires under this kind of turmoil introduced by major, major climate change that was going on there. And so it, it just struck me that one of the key reasons that religions of this axial age type might have evolved, which are much more sophisticated and doctrinal, is to provide some kind of resilience in the community against these invasions by outside forces that were clearly so troubling for them. As I mentioned in my introduction, this is the year in which we'll be getting much of the data from the 2021 census, including the religion question. And I put quite a lot of money that the religion data will show that for the first time ever, really, less than 50% of people in the UK will claim to belong to a religion. And there'll be a lot of conversation about how we're a secular society. It's very striking, isn't it, that there have been many, many attempts over recent decades or centuries to replace religious communities with secular communities. So it's not as if we haven't tried to replicate the functional success of religions whilst jettisoning the mystical stance and the transcendent element. But almost always these communities are smaller or more short-lived than religious communities. So this is partly a kind of a forward-looking question. Why is that? Why do secular communities repeatedly fail? I think part of it is the effect that these transcendental beliefs that most religions involve somehow prevail on you to behave better towards other members of your community that you live with. In other words, religions are always full of injunctions about how we should behave, and that's part of the deal. And I think that really does somehow work. But also, I suspect it's a combination of that operating with the endorphin system, because the endorphin system is being kicked in by everything we do in services, all the rituals and so on that are done in religious services, create this sense of warmth and belonging. And we've shown through one of our surveys that people who attend religious services more often feel more engaged with the 
congregation that they're a member of. There's a completely separate issue in some sense about why religions keep bouncing back. And I, I just think that's probably the mystical stance kicking in. It, that is so ancient and so much a part mm. of our makeup mm. that you can't eradicate it by education, if you like. Mm. The great French reformers of the 19th century envisioned getting rid of religion completely by educating people. You know, religion is simply superstition. And, and mm. so if you educate people in the scientific ways and they understand how the world works, they will shed all these kind of superstitions and religion will gradually wither on the vine. And clearly it didn't happen. <laughs> And ironically, when they tried to, like in Auguste Comte's famous Religion of Humanity, they ended up yes. aping yeah. exactly the thing yeah. they yes. were intending yes. to eradicate, only becoming more so, really. That then leads me to my last question. Gaze into your crystal ball and describe to me the future for religion in the light of what you've described about its origins. I'm sure people will continue to be religious, just as people will continue not to be religious, to be secular. But religions will always be there. But whether they're the same religions as we have now is another matter. And I think what's key to this is understanding why the great doctrinal religions constantly produce this bubbling up of new cults and sects that eventually become religions in their own right. You can never say what's going to happen in the future because it's accidents of history plays yes. such a... But uh, the confident predictions of famously people like Peter Berger back in the 1960s where he said that something like by the 21st century, religions will be huddled together in small sects to protect themselves against a worldwide secular culture. That prediction doesn't seem to be too strong, does it? Not in those terms. I mean, it's an interesting question as to what proportion of the population is sufficiently strongly religious to keep religions going. Uh, over the long term, you can appear to suppress religion quite successfully in the short term, as both the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution mm. post the Second World War managed to do. But then 50 years, 100 years down the line, suddenly find religion bubbling up again yes. in nooks and crannies and taking off. So the world is clearly in some sense divided into people who are more religious and less religious or more secular. And that's always been the case. Yes. The book is called How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. Robin Dunbar, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. You're very welcome. Next week, I'll be speaking to Helen Thompson about her book Disorder, Hard Times, in the 21st century. The idea that the entire energy basis of our material way of life can be transformed utterly in a 30-year period, I should say, I don't think that it can be. <laughs> but the very fact that that is what we're aiming to do, I think that does mean that we're living in extraordinary times. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.